How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who's visiting with us for the very first time this morning. So glad to have you here with us. Also, special welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Well, I have the great privilege this morning of continuing a sermon series that I began a couple of weeks ago. And the sermon series we've simply been calling Lessons from the Life of Joseph. Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And if you've been tracking with us or if you're familiar with the story of Joseph, you know it spans some uh, 14 chapters in the latter part of the book of Genesis. And uh, the, the story of Joseph is a fascinating story, and it's chock full of lessons that we can learn, which is why we called it Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And what we find when we look at this person, Joseph, in the scriptures, we find a, a, a person uh, who's rock solid in their relationship with the Lord. We find a person who is deeply connected to God in very meaningful and powerful ways. And we find, as one commentary writer, uh, that Joseph is what he calls a man of all seasons. A man of all seasons. And that is, no matter whether Joseph is up or whether he's down, whether he's uh, liked or hated, whether he's in the palace or whether he's in the dungeon, Joseph seems to never take his eye off God. And in that, in that realm, so he always seems to land on his feet, no matter what issues he faces, no matter what things are thrown out of him, no matter what accusations are levied against him, Joseph always seems to land on his feet. And I particularly like the story of Joseph because it doesn't have, uh, it's not just full of nice things. Some really bad things happen to Joseph. He has many opportunities to forsake God and to turn away from God and to be angry with God. But Joseph, no matter what he's dealing with, always keeps his eye on God and he always seems to land on his feet. And because of that, Joseph is a worthy example for us to follow, a worthy picture for us to look at and to glean some wisdom as to how we are supposed to walk this life out, how we're supposed to walk this road uh, with God in the midst of difficult situations, in the midst of ups and downs, highs and lows. And we've been saying for the last couple of weeks that it's important for us to remember that the sort of mega theme that, it, you know, that surrounds this whole story of Joseph's life, particularly his life with God, the mega theme is God's providence, the providence of God. And for some of you, that word providence is a word that's new to you, and that word providence, particularly God's providence, simply means God's protective care. His protective care. God's forethinking, his timely preparation for future eventualities. And sometimes when we think about the providence of God, we mistakenly just simply think about it as God's provision. God giving us good stuff. Him showering with blessings. God coming through in the nick of time. And while it includes that, it's not reduced to that. God's providence is taking place whether we get our wants met or not. In fact, I'm more and more in touch with the reality that the things that I want uh, are more corruptible than the things that I need. And sometimes if God were to give me my want list, my wish list, it would serve to be the noose around my neck. But God's providence speaks to God giving us what we need at just the right time for the greater glory of God and for the well-being of all people, not just you, right? 
So as we look at this fantastic, fascinating story of this wonderful, faithful guy, we see God's providence, God's working things out as we walk along this story. And we've been just sort of using as a verse that sort of uh, envelops this whole series, Romans 8, verse 28, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God uses everything to work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For those of us who believe this, for those of us who walk in this, who rest in this, who trust in this, this is, a, this is a difference maker in your life. For those of us who believe this, we can go through circumstances and difficulties and understand that there's an end to this, that God's just not up, you know, rolling the dice and just sort of playing a video game with our life and just having fun at our expense, but God is up to something. He's purposeful in what he allows and what he disallows. He's purposeful in what he puts into our path and what he takes from it. And Joseph's story highlights the truth of that verse. So we open this uh, series and we open looking at this story in Genesis chapter 37 where we meet Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. And jo Joseph being the favorite in his family got him into a lot of troubles, particularly with his brother, his other brothers. They were jealous of him. They didn't like that he was favored by his father. They didn't like the gifts that he, uh, that he received. They didn't like um, how Joseph was treated. And so Joseph, to make matters worse, Joseph has these dreams, and these dreams are very uh, complementary towards Joseph. His brothers ang get angry, and this is like the straw that just sort of breaks the camel's back, and they plot a murderous plot to kill him. But instead of killing him, they just simply sell him into, sla into slavery to some Ishmaelite traders that happen to be coming past. So Joseph finds himself a slave, moves from being a favorite son to being a slave. But Joseph, because he was special, because he was favored by God, didn't stay a slave and quickly, began, quickly gained the favor of the people who had him in captivity. And before long, Joseph was a very powerful man in Potiphar's house. And living in this very uh, opulent house, having all of these responsibilities, Joseph found himself on top again. But he didn't stay there because the Potiphar's wife was really attracted to Joseph. And she made advances on him. And Joseph, being a person of integrity, refused those advances at grace cost to him. And he wound up in prison, right? So he found himself on top. His integrity brought him there, but his, also, his integrity also cost him his freedom. And now he's in prison. We ended last week at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter 39, and we see that Joseph is now in prison. And I think what Joseph's story illustrates, especially the beginning of his story, is that nothing really shows you what you really are made of, like who you are at extreme high points and who you are at extreme low points. Who you are when the wine is flowing freely and the cupboards are just bursting with supply really, really is very telling. It's really very telling. It's also very telling who you are and how you conduct yourself, how you relate to God, how you relate to the world around you when you're down and when you're out. But last week, we got a chance to see how Joseph responded when he was high. He was in the palace. He was in charge. He had plenty of supply. We saw him respond well, and he didn't cower in fear and, and compromise his integrity to stay there. He passed the test of being high 
But as we continue through this story, particularly this week, we see, we see Joseph get to respond in a low point. We get to see who he is and how he is as he walks and passes through what some would call the furnace of affliction. And some of you know all too well how hot it gets in the furnace of affliction. Some of you today are in the furnace of affliction, dealing with unpleasant circumstances, dealing with unpleasant people. You might be sitting beside one of those people today. <laughs> I sound bad. Um, either way, many of us, if not all of us, know what it's like to walk through the furnace of affliction. And especially how difficult it is to be there for some time. And many of us have seen and beheld who we really were, who we really were. Our true colors really came out as we walked through the furnace of of affliction. And today we get to see how we're supposed to walk through that. How we're supposed to stay abiding and trusting and stay faithful and to be God's man and God's woman in the furnace of affliction. We look at Joseph in prison and we see how he responds and we continue this series this week with a message that I'm simply calling down but not out. Down but not out. You can be down but you don't necessarily have to be out. We'll continue with Genesis chapter 40 looking at the story of Joseph. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows. You can uh, feel free to use those this morning. Hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning or your phones or whatever you use to, to look at the Bible. We'll also be projecting the words on the screens in front of you. Before I begin, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth. And I thank you that you don't leave us just sort of wondering what to do. That you speak to us through your spirit. You especially speak to us through your word, through your scriptures, and you give us examples of people who have walked where we walk, who have lived where we're living, God. And particularly as it relates to how we should be and how we should live and how we should relate to you and the world around us, particularly when we find ourselves in the furnace of affliction, God, I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures uh, to us this morning. Would you speak to our hearts, especially to those who are in crisis this morning, especially uh, to those, Lord, who are finding it difficult to lean into you this morning, especially those who are finding it difficult to trust and to hope in you this morning. Would you illuminate your truth this morning? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Put power on these words that you've given me to speak. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 40. We'll begin, excuse me, at verse 1. So Joseph's been thrown into prison. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief, cu chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Excuse me. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dream. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. 
In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced a cluster of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Verse 12. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as the chief cupbearer. And please remember uh, me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I, didn't, but I did nothing to deserve it. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. And in my dream, there were three baskets of bread, excuse me, three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. Verse 18, this is what the dream means, Joseph told him. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. Then birds will come and peck away at your flesh. My, that's an interesting interpretation. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. That's cold-blooded, right? So we see this, uh, another interesting installment of Joseph's life, his story, and we get a glimpse of Joseph in prison. We get a glimpse of Joseph in prison. And this episode opens with, uh, you know, two new characters being sort of introduced to this story. We already have met Joseph. We've become acquainted with him, how faithful he is, how upright he is, how favored he is. But we meet two more people, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And we find out in the opening verses that these two guys apparently had done something to offend their royal master. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they did. But it, was, it, was, it, was, it made their master angry enough to cast them into prison. And so we see that Joseph sort of was assigned to them to take care of them because these weren't just sort of your run-of-the-mill servants. This wasn't just a dude who poured the juice in the back room, right? This wasn't just a dude that was in charge of baking all of the nice things, right? These were noblemen. These were royal officials. They held high offices, and they were very close to the king, so much so that they were assigned an attendant even in the big house. Now, how many peasants, how many common servants get, get assistance in prison, right? So I think that's there to help us understand that these guys were royal officials. Nonetheless, they offended their master, and they ended up in prison. And Joseph is assigned to them, as we've seen throughout the course of this story, that Joseph can't seem to shake responsibility can't seem to shake, you know, rising to the top wherever he is, even in prison. And so Joseph is finding favor with the guards, he's finding favor with officials, and he's always rising to the very top 
of where he finds himself. And as we look at this story, especially as we consider that Joseph is in prison, especially as we consider that Joseph is there uh, due to no fault of his own, three things sort of hop out at me as I walk through this particular passage, as I consider what it looks like to live righteously and to remember God and to focus on him as we walk and as we pass through the furnace of affliction. Three things hop out, and I want to jog through those things real quickly this morning. The first thing I noticed is that in the midst of him being in this terrible place, a place that he didn't deserve to be, Joseph remained on duty. Joseph remained on duty. He's in prison. He's been falsely accused. He could have easily grown bitter. He could have easily grown angry. He could have easily become indifferent. He could have easily checked out, crossed his arms, kicked up, maybe did some push-ups or whatever, whatever you do to pass the time in prison. But he could have very easily moved to a place of indifference where he just checks out. God, you left me, so I'm going to leave you. God, you let me go, so I'll let you go. But that's not what we see here. We see a brother who stays engaged, who stays connected, who stays on duty. Verse 5 tells us, while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker each had dreams one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. He continues, interpreting dreams is God's business. Joseph replied, go ahead and tell me your dream." You know, what really stands out to me, particularly in this passage, is that says that in verse 6, the next day, Joseph noticed that their countenance was down and dull. He noticed that they weren't in a good mood. He noticed that they looked worried. He noticed that something was off about them. And how many of you know when you're on the job, when you're on duty, you notice things? Things hop out to you in ways that they don't particularly hop out to you when you're not on the job, or when you're not on duty. He noticed these things. And when you're on the job, you notice. And why is this important? I think it's important because we all have to remember that we all have a job to do. I know you thought it was just a preacher's job to be holy and to be upright, right? And to mind my manners and to live godly and to live holy. But that's all of our job. We never get to check out of this thing. There's never a day off with this thing. There's never a day off, and maybe you've never heard that before, spoken to you uh, in a direct way. Maybe you thought that Sunday morning was the time where you had to be on, you had to be dressed, you had to have your hair done, you had to have your best, you know, face on and your best, you know, politeness on. And that's evident because some of our kids don't recognize us at church. I said, why is mommy being so nice? Why is she using different words? She usually uses much shorter <laughs> words. When you come into God's house on Sunday morning, you feel like, I'll be good today. But the reality is we are always on duty. We always have a job to do. We've all been given gifts. We've all been given light. We've all been given hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are filled with God's Spirit, and wherever you go, 
You take him with you. Wherever you go, you represent him. But sadly, for many of us, the circumstances of life, even to those who really understand that, who really understand that God has given us work to do and that we never get to check out, sometimes the circumstances of life, particularly if we've not had to deal with them before, particularly if they're uh, especially unpleasant, can very easily cause us to check out, to punch out, to fold our arms, to sit in the corner, particularly when we're dealing with sickness, sick in your body, when you're dealing with lack or not enough supply, when you're dealing with stress or an increased workload, when you're dealing with hurt and habits and hang-ups. Some of you, when you get cut off, when you're driving on the highway, some of you just check out for a real quick moment and nobody can tell in that moment that you follow Jesus because the circumstances of life has a way of clocking us out, as it were. But one of the things that I notice about Joseph in this story, in this particular installment, and all throughout his life, now whether he's up, whether he's down, Joseph stays engaged. He stays on the clock. He stays on duty. And what Joseph will soon realize as this story plays out and what we'll all realize is that this opportunity, this interaction that he has with these two guys as it relates to these two dreams, this is a divine appointment. This is a divine appointment. This is an opportunity for him to show God's power and to demonstrate God's care for these guys and show God's power. And this will be of great benefit to him as this story progresses, but we really don't have any way of knowing in the moment if this is one of those really significant events or if this is just an event that will pass us by. So why is that important? It's important because we always, always have to be on duty. Always have to be on duty. You say, when do I get to check out? When do I not get to be on duty? Is there any day throughout the year, any time where we just get to just fly under the radar and just coast by and let somebody else, let somebody else fill in for us? The answer to that is no. When do you get to check out? Never. Why? Because God's always doing something. He's always at work. He's always working some things out. And I dare not check myself out of the game. Joseph stays checked in. He stays engaged. The second thing I noticed is that Joseph maintains his confidence in God. And this is perhaps the most important thing for us to do, especially when we're in the valley, especially when we're dealing with difficult situations and difficult people and the circumstances of life press us and squeeze us for all we're worth. Joseph maintained his confidence and God, and this is so easy to lose in the furnace of affliction. So easy to lose your confidence in God. And I would go as far as to say that it's not like you stop believing in God. I think very few people during, you know, hard times stop believing in God. But I think there's this thing that creeps in that causes us to lose our confidence in him. Causes us to lose our trust in him causes us to lose our excitement for pressing in and leaning in and listening and responding. Something about the circumstances of life, something about the furnace of affliction that causes us to lose faith in God, confidence in God. 
And perhaps the circumstances of life, particularly if it's unjust or particularly if it seems undeserved, makes you, well, angry with God. Makes you angry with God. And in much like if you're angry with somebody you're in relationship, you begin to, you know, sort of give them the silent treatment. You give them the silent treatment. Well, I'm not going to talk to you today. I'm not going to read your word today. I'm not going to respond to you today. And a day of that turns into a week of that, and a week of that turns into a month of that, and a month of that turns into a year of that. And when you look up, you've drifted away. And the circumstances of life has caused you to lose your connection with God, and your connection with God begin to fail when you begin to lose your confidence in God. Not that you are not confident that he's almighty and all-powerful, but you've lost confidence in the fact that he cares deeply for you because somehow you've misunderstood his providence to mean that things will always go right for you. And perhaps you listen to a preacher on television tell you that if things are going well, then God likes you, and if things are going poorly, then God must be angry with you. You must have fallen out of God's favor, and you can just play Bible roulette, and you'll find a story that disproves that. Particularly if you look at the story of Jesus, particularly if you look at the story of people that God used mightily, many people, in fact, all of them have faced difficult times, and those difficult times carved out character in them. Those difficult times had greater meaning and a greater purpose, and they brought God glory, and they benefited other people. So we need to just throw this notion far from us that good times mean God's happy with us and bad times means he's angry. It's ridiculous. It doesn't jive with the scriptures. And to have a faulty understanding of the seasons of life and how God is actively involved in those will always have us misinterpreting and misunderstanding what God is doing. And so our disposition sort of moves to a place where I have to understand what God is up to in order to be happy. I need to know what he's working out in order for me to be faithful. I need to see how this present suffering is going to benefit me or uh, somebody else in some meaningful way before I'm okay with this. And that it just doesn't work that way. And for those of you who've been in this sort of stalemate with God, how's that working out for you? As God caved, and he said, no, 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 okay, I can't take it anymore. Don't be so silent with me. Here's some candy. Oh, here's whatever you've been asking me for. I can't, just, I can't bear the silent treatment anymore. I cave, I give up. You win. If your God does that, you need to get a new God. Okay? But Joseph maintains his confidence in God. Maintains his confidence in God. You say, how do, I, how do I know that? Verse 6, when Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed they both looked upset. Why do you look worried, they asked. And they both told him that they had dreams, but no one can tell them what they mean. Interpreting dreams, Joseph says, is God's business. Interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dream. And in that short sentence right there, we see that Joseph still understands that even in the dungeon, even in this despicable place where he's arrived as a result of somebody lying on him, being dishonest, even in this place that God is working. Even in this place that God's working. And you want to know if you've lost confidence in God? 
You want to know if your confidence and your trust in him has waned. You really don't begin to, you really don't see God working around you. You become unavailable to him. He can't stop you in the grocery store and have you minister to somebody or encourage somebody like he used to. The circumstances of life has a unique way of causing you to focus on yourself to the point where you don't notice other people. It's not that people aren't going through things. It's not that things, opportunities to show God's glory and to show his power aren't happening all around you. It's just that we can just become so self-absorbed, so consumed with our own life, have our own little pity parties to where we don't even notice what God is doing around us. We don't even notice the opportunities that we have to serve other people and bring the kingdom to other people. We don't notice, but this is not what happens to Joseph. He notices. And not only he notices, but he asks a question. And not only does he ask a question, he says, listen, God can interpret this. God can do it, even in the midst of this situation. God is still operating, even though we're outside of, you know, a pleasant experience. God can do it. He's not lost his confidence in God. And this is why many of us don't pray when we're in the darkness and we're in the dungeon, because we feel like God's not there. This is why we don't seek the Lord when trouble hits, because we believe that maybe he's not there. And when I can claw my way out of this again, maybe God is able to hear and respond. But what does the psalmist say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. God is with me because he's with me. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, there's no place that I can go from you. I can't escape your presence. I can't go anywhere from your spirit. And oftentimes when I'm in the dark place, as in Psalm 23, God let me there. He let me there for my sake. He let me there because there's water down there. There's provision there. God let me there so he's with me. And as we unpack this story, we'll see that God was with Joseph all along, and God has him in this specific place. And the beauty is that Joseph has not lost his confidence in God. The third thing is that we see is that Joseph did not forget who he was. Joseph didn't forget who he was. So Joseph stays checked in. He stays engaged. He doesn't lose his confidence in God. And thirdly, he doesn't forget who who he is, who he is. We've been talking a lot about identity, who we really are. And your identity we've just been defining is, you know, what did God have in mind when he made you? You are a designer's original. God had a plan for you when he made you. There's nothing arbitrary. There's nothing random about it. God had a plan for you when he made you. That's your true identity. That's who you are. That's what you should aspire to. That's who you are. That's your identity, right? And I always say, if you ever want to sort of know, um, and you can know all the things that we can teach you about God. You can know the Bible cover to cover. You can know everything there is to know about God, but you will not live the abundant life. You won't be fruitful. You won't be faithful if you don't know who you are and how you fit in the grand scheme of God's picture. So we spent a lot of time talking about identity, who I am, who you are, as it relates to God's big story. 
And we see that Joseph has a good understanding, even in the dungeon, even in the prison, even in this unpleasant circumstance, that he's still God's man. He's still God's man. They told him about the, his, these dreams, and he says, interpreting God, dreams is God's business, Joseph replied, go ahead and tell me your dream. Just like a boss, man. I mean, Joseph has this swagger, he has this confidence. Just tell me the dream. Me and God, we'll figure it out. We'll work it out. We'll get to the bottom of this. And Joseph knew who he was. And who was he? Who was he? We see that Joseph was what I like to call, he was God's inside man. He was God's inside man. He was embedded into that situation for the greater glory of God and to help those two guys. Now, Joseph is special, but he's not more special than we are. We also are God's men and his women. We also are God's inside men and women. And what I mean by that is every place where you go, God should feel very confident that he's got an insider there. That if he wants to do something in that place, that he wants to speak to somebody there, if he wants to heal somebody there, if he wants to speak a word of prophecy, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, if he wants to do anything in that room where you are, he ought to feel confident that he's got an inside man or an inside woman there. And this highlights the importance, this highlights the significance of not checking out. Of not checking out. Listen, everywhere you go, God's spirit goes with you. Everywhere you go, his truth and his light ought to follow you. And I feel like the stakes are just too high for me to take casual days off. The stakes are too high for me to get in my feelings and render myself useless for the purposes of God. The stakes are too high. I love those, you know, back in the 90s, the Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal movies, those action movies where it's just like a retired army dude or some off-duty police officer. They just happen to be in the store. Just happen to be in the store when the hostages, you know, move in, Right? And oh, what relief the police department finds or the army uh, finds when they discover that they've got a guy on the inside. What joy they have when they, you know, can connect with this guy and through some miraculous deal, he can defeat, you know, you know 70 armed men with only a butter knife, you know, because <laughs> he's that skilled, right? But we laugh at that, man, but I really would like us to gain some insight Esther, that's how we operate when we go different places with God's spirit on the inside of us. That's who we are, man. Where we go to work, where we go to school, where we go to play, where we shop, dude. We're inside men and women. Carriers of God's glory, his presence, his power, man. And at the drop of a hat, somebody can come and talk to us and receive insight. At the drop of a hat, somebody can come to us and receive prayer and experience God just because we showed up. And I don't mean just physically showed up, but that we're there and we're on duty. We're in uniform. We're ready to serve, man. And Joseph understood that this was who he was. He didn't check out of this, man, just because he found himself in a tight spot, just because the furnace was heating up, just because he'd been wrong, he didn't check out. This was a divine appointment. This was a divine setup. This was a part of the story. 
This pain, this circumstance, his, his traveling through this difficult place was not just part of the plan. I'm sorry, not just part of the story, but it was part of the plan. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that just be, you know, that, that pain as it relates to God is not just a part of your story sometimes, but it's often a part of the plan. It's how God planned it. And to keep that in mind helps us to stay engaged and realize that we're God inside men, God's inside men and women. So this, Joseph says, listen, go ahead, tell me your dream. We can work this thing out. God will speak. And so these guys take a stab at it. So the chief cupbearer, verse 9, told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph just didn't hesitate. He says, this is what the dream means, man. And three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as chief cupbearer. Here's Joseph. He's God's inside man. He just says, listen, man, this is what this means. This will happen, dude. Hey, no sweat. No sweat. Now, the second guy, he hears this and he goes, maybe he can tell me my dream. And maybe it's as favorable, the, the report, the interpretation. So he tells Joseph his dream. He basically has this dream about these baskets and birds come and eat. And Joseph doesn't hesitate. He said, listen, this is what that dream means. The three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. The birds will come and peck away at your flesh. It's not going to end well for you, buddy. Is basically what Joseph says. At the drop of a hat, Joseph was able to speak God's word and interpret these dreams. He stayed engaged, he stayed connected, and he was able to do God's work. Now, he told a good report, but when the second dream was unfavorable, he could have easily said, eh, I, don't know, I don't know about that one. Let me, let me think about that for about three or four days, right? And just let this thing play out. But he spoke the word of the Lord, and it was unfavorable. Now, we read the story, and we, we find out that these dreams come to pass. These dreams come true. These dreams come true. So what happens after that? What happens after that? I'd love to tell you. I'd love to tell you that Joseph's faithfulness and him staying engaged and staying connected really paid off and that through some miraculous working, he was freed from the prison. I'd love to tell you that. But I think you've read ahead and you know that that's not what happens. I think you know that that's not what happens. And we're faced again with this moment of truth where we expect the story to end nicely because we watch a lot of movies and we read a lot of books and the best ones end nicely and they have happy endings, but we don't see that particularly happen in this story. Verse 20 through 23 tells us that Joseph's interpretations were accurate. The cupbearer was freed and the baker was killed. Verse 23 tells us, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Never giving him another thought. Now, can you imagine Joseph? Can you imagine Joseph knowing that this thing is going to work out, knowing that these guys have been free? Can you imagine him going to the door and just sort of checking and making sure every time he hears some keys rattle, every time the new prisoner, the, the gate is open, he goes and thinking, maybe it's today the day. Maybe it's today the day. 
And if you read uh, the opening verses of, verse, uh, of chapter 41, the very next chapter, the opening verses read this way. When two full years had passed, and I'll just stop there, this gives us an indication that Joseph stays locked up in prison for two more long years. Two more long years. And this particular episode, this particular installment, doesn't have a nice, happy ending, but it does have plenty of application and truth and even yet more lessons for us to learn. The two important lessons that I want to close with are these. The first is that we need to stop trusting people. Now, I have an asterisk there because I don't mean that you should completely stop trusting people altogether. But the reality is that many of us have too much of our hope and our trust in other people. And if we look closely at this story, especially up until now, there's lots and lots of people who have failed Joseph. Lots and lots of people who have failed him. Not to mention almost a dozen of his brothers who are by, who by blood and by nature are supposed to take care of him, to look after his best interests, to protect him, and to minimally do him no harm, sold him into slavery only after they abandoned a murderous plot to kill him. Sold into slavery, right? And the Potiphar and the Potiphar's wife throw him into prison under false accusation. Come on, man. Everybody in this life is letting him down. Then he does a favor for these two guys in prison, and he says after the favorable gene, he said, listen, dude, whatever you do, don't forget about me. Now, the scriptures don't record exactly what his reply was, but I'm sure he was so happy with the news he'd gotten that he promised and pinky promised and pinky swore and everything else that the moment that he got out, the moment that he was restored and in good graces again, he would mention him and he'd get him out. I'm just, I'm just supposing here. And year one passes and then year two passes and here Joseph is, plenty of time on his hands, an innocent man sold into slavery finds himself in prison thinking, no doubt praying. And all the while, just sort of rehearsing over and over in his mind how person after person after person has let him down. And some of you have plenty of time to think for yourself here today how person after person after person has failed you and let you down, and lied on you, and forgotten about you. Now, I don't think that God is calling us to just sort of do away with people. I think that would ruin, you know, our relationships and our happiness here on earth. But I think what God would draw our attention to is the frailty of man, the selfishness of man, and as we consider the selfishness and the frailty of man and our tendency and the guarantee that as broken, selfish humans, we will let each other down, I think it begins to highlight God's goodness and his faithfulness. It highlights God's goodness and his faithfulness. And in case you haven't come to this reality, human beings, no matter how noble they are, no matter how spiritual they are, no matter how closely uh, related to you they are, they will simply let you down. It's what we humans do. 
We don't always mean to. We don't always intend to. It's just the way our humanity is set up. It's just kind of part of the deal. It's part of the deal. And many of our relationships are so broken because we're counting on people to do things that they were never designed to do. Trying to look for fulfillment and completeness in people and human relationships that God never intended us to get from them. And so you're mad at God and you're mad at people. And you've completely neutralized your purpose here on earth, which is to love God and to love other people. And so my challenge to you is to stop trusting in people, I'll add, so much or too much. And as we discover the frailty of humanity, we learn and we see the faithfulness and the steadfastness of God. And once we learn that God is faithful and that people aren't to be completely dependent upon, we come to the second lesson, and that is that we need to wait on God. We need to wait on God. Some of us trust God, but, you know, our stamina for doing that is, you know, a couple days. (laughs) And that's cool if God's going to turn it around in two days, but if that turns into two years or three days, (laughs) then we're in trouble. And we're in trouble. And some of you, you've got all the Christian stuff down pat. You've got it all figured out. You're, you're, you're hidden on all cylinders except that wait on the Lord part. Except that wait on the Lord part. And your walk with God wouldn't be so fractured if he would just, if we would just hurry up. <laughs> if he would just fix this thing. If he would just do what I asked him to do if he would just make this right. And you're wrestling today with why God is taking so long. Now, as we begin to work out this story in the next couple chapters, we'll begin to see what God is up to. But I want to speak to those of you who are waiting right now. Worship team, you can come up. For those of you who are waiting right now, the Bible tells us that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I found that I'm not, more, I'm not any more weak than when I'm waiting on the Lord and when I'm questioning what his plans are and when I'm questioning what God is up to and I'm waiting on him. I'm waiting on some things right now. I wish I had time to tell you about it. I'm wondering what God's up to in some areas of my life right now. But throughout all of this, I've been able to see, particularly as I examine this story, that God has been faithful through the years. He's been faithful through the years. And as you sit and wait, and as you sit and wonder, and as you sit and try to figure out what God is doing, my prayer for you is that God would just begin to highlight his faithfulness. He would begin to remind you that some of you should be dead right now because of the choices that you've made, because of the decisions that you've made, because of some of the things that you've attached yourself through. But God has been faithful. And you don't have all that you want right now in terms of provision and resource, but some of you should be homeless right now were it not for God's faithfulness and his provision. And what God would challenge you and even encourage you today is to just just wait on him and see, won't he come through? Wait on him and see, won't he come through? Where, Where are you today? Where are you today? As you, some of you are in the furnace of affliction, as some of you 
are waiting. You're passing through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's lack. Maybe it's stress. Maybe it's increased workload. Maybe it's a crisis of faith. But where are you today? My challenge for you is to wait because God is good. My challenge to you is to trust because God is faithful. Because he's faithful. My prayer for us is as we worship today that God would begin to highlight those places that we've checked out. And we would highlight those reasons why we've checked out. And he would draw us to a place of faith and trusting in him. And that faith will be stirred as we worship him. And his hope will be stirred as we worship him. We'll pick up this story next week. God, I thank you so much for your truth. I thank you so much for your plan, even though we can't see it. I thank you so much for this story, God, how you show us that you're always working, even in the fine and imperfect details of our life and our story. And God, while pain is unpleasant, it's, 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 it's helpful for us to know that you often use it to get things done in us. So God, I pray that you would release this morning the gift of faith for those who are struggling, for those who are waiting, and for those who are wondering, and for those who are on the fringes, and for those who are on the fence. God, I pray that you would release the gift of faith. Would you release, Lord, the patience, the same patience that Joseph had, Lord, to know that you're up to something, to be your inside man, no matter where we find ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would release that gift for us today. God, you know our situations, you know our circumstances, you know exactly where we are. And God, I ask that your spirit would fill us today, fortify us this morning, cement us and anchor our souls in you. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.